We're going to be in John chapter 18, uh, verses 28 through 38. I'll give you guys a second to get there if you want to follow along. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, you take him and judge him according to your law. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is the truth, said Pilate. This is the word of the Lord. very much. Thank you. Um, So yeah, as Steve mentioned, we have a lot of people on the mission field, which is why this room looks the way. We could almost bring everyone in and do church like the really old way, like who's got a birthday today, but we won't. Um, (laughs) But it's very exciting, everybody. We have a a lot of people doing a lot of cool stuff out on the road this week. Um, another cool thing that just happened, about 30 of us went to something this, this past weekend, Friday and Saturday, called Superstart. Uh, many of you know what Superstart is, but if you don't, it's a, um, a conference put on by a group called Christ in Youth who does student ministry stuff all over the country. And they put on a conference um, for fourth through sixth graders. So for a lot of these kids, this is their first kind of church conference type thing, overnight type thing. And uh, this was my first time to go. I've never been able to go, but my, my uh, son was finally old enough to go, so I went. And uh, I have some thoughts to share with you guys about Superstart. Superstart's very interesting. Um, first of all, fourth grade boys can make a van smell ways I never thought was possible. I'm so used to those of you who've discovered deodorant, and uh, it was rough. Um, loved it, but it was rough. Um, Debbie... Our, our sweet children's minister emailed the sponsors the schedule, which is, she doesn't set it, it's set by CIY, but I'm looking at this thing, and it says, okay, eat dinner before Friday night, we go to our first session, then after that we go to a local church where a bunch of other churches are going to be staying, and pizza and games begin at 10 p.m., begin at 10 p.m., okay, lights out at midnight, and then Justin and Debbie's son finally stopped talking about 3 a.m. And then we get up at seven for donuts, just donuts. We go to another session, then we go to an arcade and eat more pizza, and then we go to another. And I just think this schedule was put together by someone who's not mentally well. Like this is, (laughs) either they asked the fourth graders what the schedule should be, or an adult was just trying to inflict the maximum amount of pain and suffering on other people. but it was great. It was great. Actually, one story of uh, Harper, <laughs> one little girl yesterday, we're about to leave to come back, and she is shoving an ice cream cone in her face. And we're like, you can slow down. It's fine. And quote, 
I have to finish this before my mom finds out and tells me no. And she's just shoving an ice cream cone in her face. I was like, okay, I'm glad you're not in my van. Um, but I learned a bunch of other things. One thing that I was really grateful for is CIY as an organization is very, um, they're, they're, they're pretty forward thinking in terms of trying to get out ahead of trends so that they can do their best to answer them from a, a bit of a Christian perspective. And so they're polling youth ministers all over the country saying, what are you guys dealing with? What are some things you'd like us to look into and, and to provide resources for? And I guess the consensus over the last couple of years was increasingly so, Children in our student ministries are struggling to know how to process and deal with the varying emotions that they experience. And so CIY came up with a whole um, conference this year on how to deal with emotions. And uh, so this was my lanyard I had to wear all weekend. And in it, I had a little book. And I thought that they did a really great job of, one, um, meeting the kids where they are. And two, as I'm sitting there listening to these speakers thinking, I think most adults should probably go through this same curriculum on how to navigate emotions. And they were teaching in like sing-song, rhymey ways, and I thought that's really good because it's really memorable for kids, and then I thought that's really good because it's really memorable for adults. And um, anyway, I just wanted to share with you one of these things that they, they taught the kids because I thought it was so good, and I look forward to having more of these conversations with my own uh, kids. And I know Debbie's bringing a lot of this material back and teaching it in the student ministries, but... They highlighted two really important ideas. One, that Jesus himself is human. So that it's not as though our, our Lord is like um, dispassionately disconnected from those of us that have feelings. In fact, the book of Hebrews says he can actually sympathize with everything that we've gone through. He's, he's very human in that sense. And so they put this little rhyme together that says like, Jesus has experienced what you've experienced. And they go through the emotions of sadness and anger and happiness and being overwhelmed. And by the way, when they have the kids' inventory, what kind of uh, um, feelings do you have a lot? Overwhelmed is overwhelmingly the answer, which may say something about a lot of things, but a lot of them feeling overwhelmed. And they, they gave us this little rhyme, and I thought it was really good. So it says this. When I feel, and then there's just a blank for whatever emotion you're feeling, so in many of these kids' cases, when I feel overwhelmed and don't know what to do, pause and remember that Jesus felt it too. And they go and they talk about the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is feeling totally overwhelmed with what he's got to do. And, and anyway, they, they really want the kids to know that he can sympathize, empathize with what we felt. And I thought that was really, really helpful. And then the next day they come in and they say, then what do you do? And they said, well, you turn to God in prayer. And so the, the following rhyme is, uh, when I'm feeling overwhelmed and don't know what to do, I pause, remember that Jesus felt it too. Tell him what you're going through. Take it to him in prayer. And I thought that was so good. Um, and, I, and I look forward to seeing what kind of fruit comes out of just those, that you know, short little conference and, and as we continue to talk about it around here. But the other thing that I really appreciate and CIY does this all the way from the little littles all the way up to the oldest students they work with, is they have this concept known as a kingdom worker. Kingdom worker. They say it all the time. And in their little booklet, they give a nice little definition. It says, a kingdom worker is anyone who uses their gifts, talents, and abilities for the glory of God to build up his kingdom. I thought that was great. Perfectly uh, simple enough for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders to understand, and perfectly simple enough for the rest of us to understand. But as I'm sitting there listening to them explain this concept of a kingdom worker, I, 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 was, I, I had already worked through this, this sermon 
on Jesus' first encounter with Pilate. And I thought, wow, that, that really just assumes that we recognize that there is a kingdom to work for. And, and they're really trying to equip these kids and equip their student ministers to, to, to have the resources they need to develop into increasing degrees of kingdom workers. And I think that's wonderful. It just assumes that there's a kingdom worth working for. And it implies that there are alternative kingdoms that we shouldn't work for. And I'm hearing all of this this weekend, knowing that we're about to come in here and talk about this encounter with Pilate, where you have truly kingdoms clashing with one another. The Jewish nation has their concept of a kingdom, and Jesus is an obstacle. So they bring him to Pilate. Can you kill this man? Pilate is charged with protecting the efforts and the, 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 the desires, the tokens of the Roman kingdom. And you can tell at first, he's not really interested in this whole Jesus guy. He doesn't really want to seem, he doesn't seem like he wants to kill him, but he will. Because he's got a kingdom to work for. The Jews have a kingdom that they would love to to come to fruition. Pilate's got one that he needs to protect. And Jesus comes in and says things like, "Mm, my kingdom's not of this world. So we have at a minimum in this story, three competing kingdoms. And our task this morning is, um, I I think you can safely assume we're going to land on Jesus' kingdom is the superior kingdom. However... As we make our way through why, I think it will be helpful for us to come in contact with a lot of passages that are just very familiar to us. I don't know if I'm going to be able to offer you anything that you've not already considered or even come to agree with this morning, but I think it's really helpful to go through these passages and remind ourselves of what it is that's true, remind ourselves that what it is that we say we believe, and remind ourselves of the implications of those beliefs. And to do that... Again, as I'm looking at the CIY or the, the um, Superstart material and thinking about this, I, I'm reminded that we, we have to make sure that we remember how kingdoms work. How do they function? Like kingdoms throughout history have, um, they have a leadership, whether that's a single king or some sort of government, and then they have citizens, and there's an arrangement there. Kingdoms work offer, by offering security to the populace in exchange for their loyalty. At its, at its basic, most basic level, that's how kingdoms function. They provide security in exchange for loyalty. But it's not just security in terms of safety from external threats. I think security has built into it this notion of um, the best life possible for its citizens. A good kingdom by definition, allows its citizens to thrive within the kingdom, to the benefit of the kingdom, of course, but there's this idea that security has in it this notion of the best possible life. A a, a good king should not only protect its citizens, but ensure that they can live happy, fulfilled lives. That's kind of how it's worked throughout history. And citizens, in, um, in response, swear their allegiance to the king. So now I want to look at The three kingdoms that we have here, the concept of a Jewish kingdom or the Israelite kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the Roman kingdom, and then this otherworldly one that Jesus counters with. And ask, what do each of these kingdoms propose is the best life? And what does allegiance to each of these kingdoms actually look like? First, Israel's kingdom. Israel's kingdom In fact, what they wanted, their best life was to have a kingdom at all. 
Israel at this point in history, the first century, has not, has not been a sovereign state for a long time. If you think it started off okay with Saul, got better with David, looked like it might peak with Solomon but quickly declined, and then the nation splits. The Assyrian conquest comes over in 722, wipes out the northern ten tribes. The Babylonian exile begins in 586, and they're never again the same. The, the, the Israelite state, they don't even have a kingdom. They're in exile in Babylon. They find themselves under the rule of the Medo-Persians before it's all said and done. They come back. They're still just a vassal state. They vacillate between other powers, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and then Rome shows up. And with the exception of some short periods of relative independence, maybe 100 to 2550 years of relative independence, they have no king. And so Israel, their best life is to have a kingdom at all. And they, their concept of that kingdom, it, it, it floats through this grid of this concept of a, a prophet like Moses. And then this promised Messiah figure. They're, they're trying to navigate all, what all this looks like. But in their mind, we need a king. In order to have a kingdom, what best represents a kingdom except for a king? And Jesus just doesn't really play nicely with that notion. So if that's the idea of the best life for, the Israel, uh, for Israel's kingdom, it makes sense why in John chapter 6 there's a little bit of a conflict. Jesus shows up. Uh, this, this story is found in all four Gospels. He feeds 5,000, kind of like a king. Actually, uh, when Jesus feeds 5,000, if you look at the, the adjectives that are described, he, he sets them down in the green grass, and he tends to them, and he feeds them. It seems like the good shepherd has shown up. But he's also, it seems like the king is opening up the storehouses to take the grain and feed the people. And they're like, if he can do that. And they start to get this idea of what, what Jesus might be. So in John 6, verse 14, it says, The people saw the sign he'd done, and they said, This truly is the prophet. This would be like the prophet after Moses, who has come into the world. Therefore, Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Now, what kind of king did they want? Because we all know Jesus does, in fact, assume the throne of Israel in a sense, but that's not what they wanted. They wanted a king to kick Rome back to the Italian peninsula. They wanted an anti-Roman king. They wanted to be a sovereign state, and they wanted Rome to leave until they need Rome to kill someone like Pilate, and we come back to our story. That's the kind of king they wanted. But that's not the kind of king Jesus has come to be, and so he withdraws and gets out of the, the limelight for a time. Now, it makes sense to me why, if you can feed thousands of people miraculously, that the general populace is going to get in their minds that maybe this is the guy. But Jesus makes it clear, that's not what I've come to do. And then he runs around for a couple of years with his disciples, and they see him in the garden. They go through the Last Supper with him. They see him crucified. They get really sad about that, but then he comes back to life. They spend some time with him, and then he's about to go back to the Father, and they still don't get it. Even those closest to Jesus still have it burned in their mind. Isn't the problem Rome? Isn't the problem that we need to get them out of here? Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, He's done all this ministry with the disciples, and they ask. They come together, they ask him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? 
Now, they didn't think it would happen back then, or at least they they accepted Jesus' correction back whenever he fed the 5,000. But they still have it in their mind that, well, maybe he just needs more time to establish the boundary markers of this kingdom. Maybe he's now ready to get rid of Rome. He sure probably has a bone to pick with Pilate, if you remember what happened recently. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I've come to do. But this is their vision for the ultimate kingdom of Israel. And Jesus just doesn't really play well with that. And what are some of the markers of their allegiance to this future vision, this this future idea of a kingdom? Um, If you think about John chapter 5, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. He goes to the pool of Bethesda. There's a man sitting there. He's been sitting there for a long time. He can't walk. And Jesus heals him. Suddenly, after 38 years, he can walk. Problem is that Jesus did that on the Sabbath. Because this man did exactly what he was supposed to do. He's been miraculously healed. He's been, he's in some sense been undefiled. And now he needs to go and report what's happened to the priests, to the temple complex, and go through the appropriate rituals after something like this has happened to you. And when they hear about this, they're not like, oh, wow, we have a miracle work on our hands. I'm so glad you can walk. It must have been pretty rough not walking for 38 years, but thanks be to God, you can walk. That's not what they said. They said he did this on what day of the week? The Sabbath? And what they're concerned with is their allegiance to their notion of a kingdom is filtered through their interpretation of the law. And it doesn't have, at least in their understanding, the capacity to embrace what Jesus is doing. John chapter five says, in light of this healing, the man who was lame, it says the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Their allegiance was not to health and restoration. Their allegiance was to their understanding of the law. And Jesus was not passing their test. It begins with persecution. Later on, Jesus will go, and he's got a friend named Lazarus. Lazarus is a very close friend, we're told. And uh, Jesus seems to drag his feet as Lazarus falls gravely ill. Doesn't really, chases some rabbit trails and just kind of takes his time getting to Bethany where Lazarus is very sick. By the time he gets there, Lazarus has been dead four days. Long enough to know he's very much dead. Jesus is even accused of taking too long. He gets there. I said, if you had come quicker, you could have saved him. You could have healed him. There's a certain degree of faith in Jesus' miraculous abilities there. But they look at a closed tomb and say, well, your abilities don't extend that far. And Jesus says, actually, I took my time on purpose so that you'll see what's about to happen and so that God will be glorified. He raises Lazarus from the dead, gets up, roll away the stone. He walks out and he's like, take those burial cloths off him. He's fine. The Jews weren't so thrilled with that one either. And he heals a man who's lame, they begin to persecute him. He raises the dead. <laughs> Their best idea is that they, can, they should kill him, which I've always felt that John loves irony. 
Like to start making death threats against a guy who can raise the dead seems to be like empty barking, but that's where they're going. It says in John 11, verse 48, this would be the Sanhedrin. So this is like the upper echelon of leadership who is very much in bed with Rome. They are not, um, they're not pure, uh, like Jewish purists, like the Pharisees might be. The Sanhedrin love their position of power, and they love that that position is protected by Rome. As they will protect Rome's interests, Rome will protect their positions of power. And the Sanhedrin hear about this Lazarus story going on in Bethany, and they say this, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In John 5, the Pharisees don't have any room for Jesus' miracle workings because they, they, of their understanding of the law. In John 11, the Sanhedrin don't have any room for Jesus' miracle workings because of their position of privilege and power that's, that's propped up by Rome. Their allegiances are becoming clear. And then there's the kind of the final nail towards the end of the Gospels. Um, Jesus, he, he, he's not, not really one in the Gospels to obscure his divinity. Um, sometimes it seems like he's playing word games, but he's pretty upfront about who he is. He becomes unbelievably explicit toward the end. It's like by the end of the Gospels, Jesus speaks to someone who's looking to get killed by Rome. It's like he had a plan. And so he starts saying things, like he starts to refer to himself as the son of man. Uh, that's not a title that indicates that he's a human being. Rather, it's a title that he's borrowing from Daniel chapter 7. A title that is given in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, to the, this, this divine figure who sits at the right hand of God Almighty. So in Daniel 7, you already have at least two divine figures. And, and I, how, how we work through that, I don't know. But then Jesus shows up, you're like, ah, oh, I have an idea how we work through that. So Jesus starts to refer to himself as the son of man, which really irritates those in positions of power who consider such a thing to be um, somewhere between evil and blasphemy. But they call it blasphemy. So in Matthew 26, he starts telling the, the leadership um, after uh, accusing them of being whitewashed tombs and after pronouncing a bunch of woes or curses on the Jewish leadership, he says, and by the way, when everything is said and done, you'll see me, the son of man, likes to throw that little incendiary device out there, you'll see me sitting at the right hand of the father from a position above you. The religious leaders have no ability to tolerate that. And it says in verse 65 of Matthew 26, the high priest rips his robes and he says, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See now, you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And the answer, he deserves death. He heals the lame, they persecute him. He raises the dead. They're like, I think we should probably think about killing him soon. He starts to refer to himself with these divine names and they say, blasphemy, go get Pilate. He deserves death. I don't know. I mean, the, the, the notion of, of the Israelite kingdom is flawed here. It's all in the shadow of Rome. And the, the allegiance that they use to demonstrate their, their hope for that kingdom is, is certainly quite skewed. Rome, their version of the kingdom is quite different. They obviously have a vested interest in staying in Palestine. 
They, uh, they, in fact, Rome was known to, to, to conquer as many bordering kingdoms as they could. And one of the things that they don't like to do is to make those kingdoms um, inherently Roman. They actually rather leave you as you are because what they want is they want, your, um, they want your crops and they want your tax dollars. And so what Rome's kingdom is, is marked by is actually by peace, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which was maintained at the end of a sword. So Rome's empire is to gather up as many neighboring nations as they can, and they say, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're going to, um, we're going to build our roads through your, through your nation, which you're welcome. We're going to give you the protection of the greatest military in the world. You're welcome. In return, you will feed that military, you will pay your taxes and your tribute to Caesar, and if you're not a Jew living in Palestine, you're probably gonna to have to also worship using the temple, the, 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 um, the imperial cult of Caesar. You have to burn a little incense to Caesar, maybe offer some prayers, just a little bit. You can keep your gods, I don't care, but you're gonna to add to Caesar, and, uh, and then that's how it's all gonna work. Pilate's job with this kingdom, if it's marked by just prominence, the best life is expansion, and a massive empire. Allegiance looks like paying taxes and feeding the military. Pilate's job as the governor there in, in Judea, in Palestine, is to make sure that I keep that peace at all costs. Now, what's going through Pilate's mind when they bring Jesus to his quarters, say, we need you to kill this man. We're not allowed to kill people. You guys took that right away from us. So according to our law, we can't execute him, but you should. And, uh, and we've already asked him all the questions, so this should be open and shut. Right, Pilate? And he's like, I don't care. Why do, why do I care about Jesus? He's like, this is a Jewish problem. In fact, in the other Gospels, it actually tells us that Pilate's wife had a dream the night before. And she is disturbed by this dream, and she, in this dream, she realizes that Pilate is going to encounter someone who's going to be a very costly person to run into the following day. So we're told that um, she warns him, this man that they're bringing to you have nothing to do with him. That's in the back of Pilate's mind, I'm sure. Also in the back of Pilate's mind, maybe more towards the front of his mind, this is the Passover festival. Jerusalem is swollen. Jerusalem as a city, probably at this point in history, maybe had a, a, a standing population of 25, 30,000 people. During the Passover festival, there are estimates that it would swell to as many as 250, 300,000 people. Everyone has to come. And Pilate, his job is to keep the peace. The city is bursting at the seams, and now there's this incendiary figure who's causing problems with the leadership, so much so that the leadership wants him dead. Pilate doesn't really see much fault in him. That seems pretty evident. His wife told him to have nothing to do with him, but he knows he cannot let this spiral. He, the worst thing for Pilate is a citywide riot. And he's so concerned with that that he's going to take a man he's not very interested in and seems to think is innocent and rather quickly exchange him for another man named Barabbas. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, even if it requires a crucifixion. But Jesus comes along in this encounter. He's standing there before Pilate, 
And he starts to describe a different kind of kingdom than the one the Israelite leadership seems to be interested in or the one that the Roman leadership has to protect. He describes a different kind of kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Um, I don't know if that's a dig at Peter for swinging the sword, but mostly Jesus' followers, his servants, are, are passively letting this happen to their king. Again, they're not so clued into what's happening that they really see everything for what it is, but they're, they're letting it happen. They're not fighting. As it is, my kingdom is not from here. It's a strange statement. Pilate certainly doesn't seem to understand it. Um, so what does it mean to have like an otherworldly kingdom? John, the evangelist, wrote John. He also wrote Revelation much later. He says in Revelation chapter 5, so Revelation 4 and 5 are interesting chapters. They give a, the, 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 Revelation is a very kingly book. It very much speaks of God as king over all things. And in Revelation chapter 4, you have God in his oneness, maybe even God the Father. You have this throne room scene where God is just overwhelmingly um, incredible with splendor and majesty. And then in Revelation 5, you have another royal scene, but it's different because it's a lamb standing as though slain. So you go with something that the mind can't even comprehend to something that looks like an animal that's been killed. And they're both royal pictures. And John's just trying to describe what he sees and trying to give a, a, a glimpse into this otherworldly kingdom that Jesus has described in John 18. And so in Revelation chapter 5, it says, when he took the scroll, so there's this lamb, this Jesus, when he took the scroll, this scroll um, couldn't be opened. No one had the authority to open it. It's, they, it can only, the seals can only be broken by someone with supreme authority. And so they're asking, who's going to open this? And the lamb takes the scroll. And the four living creatures and the 24 elders fall down and worship before the Lamb. And each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You, the Lamb, are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slaughtered. This king is worthy and has been um, gifted or has achieved supreme authority Via death. Pilate had no idea how to deal with this kind of person. He had no framework to put this kind of king in. And he just talks to Jesus as someone who's confused. Because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. Pilate was trying to build a, a, a kingdom tribes and languages and nations by just Roman expansion. That was his game. It just wasn't through getting slaughtered. Again, this otherworldly kingdom didn't fit the categories that were available at the time. Verse 10, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. My kingdom is not of this world because my kingdom is going to consist of people and they will rule with me. The Israelites couldn't fathom something like that, though they are at some level um, guilty of not seeing the forest for the trees. Pilate had no concept of, of shared authority with his subjects. 
And Jesus starts to describe this kingdom that's otherworldly. And, and when you're a part of this kingdom, you're, you're, you're uh, grafted in with some degree of priesthood. So there's this ministering uh, nature to it. And when you do so, sure, God is at the top. Of course, God is the, the, the supreme authority over all things. And yet the strange thing is that God will share his glory with us. And Jesus will share his rule with us, his dominion with us. And it's almost like we're putting back together what was lost in the garden, where we were designed to govern on God's behalf. And here in Revelation, that kingdom is being put back together. So if that's a kind of kingdom that Jesus describes, what does it look like to be faithful to that kingdom? What does it look like to be a, um, a faithful servant or a faithful member of that kingdom? Well, he says it in John 18. In fact, this is a refrain that in varying ways is held throughout John's gospel. First of all, Pilate's like, so wait, you're a king? And you, we don't get any tone in the text. So I don't know if Pilate is truly like, what? <laughs> or if he's saying it sarcastically. But he says, wait, you're a king? The one um, who's bound, the one that the Jewish leadership brought here, the one that's standing before me that I have all the power in the world to execute if I just feel like it, you're a king? Jesus said, you say that I'm a king. He says, I was born for this. And I've come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In John, um, the, one of the primary identity markers of Jesus' followers is those who listen to his voice. He'll talk about his followers as if they're sheep who listen to the voice of the shepherd. Now he is one whose business is truth. And when truth is given, those who, who are able to discern it will listen to his voice. And he sets up an alternative kingdom. Now, I can't imagine many of us are tempted to reestablish the kingdom of Israel, and we're certainly not drawn to the kingdom of Rome. And we look at Jesus' kingdom and we say, yeah, that's, that's what I am a part of, it's what I hope to be a part of. That makes sense to me. If there's three kingdoms in the text, in this room, there's four options. There's Israel, there's Rome, there's what Jesus has offered, and then there are all the little kingdoms that you and I build for ourselves. And we know this. We know that our hearts are idle factories. We know that we struggle at times to be submissive to the will of the king, king, and we establish little pseudo kingdoms for ourselves. Now, most of those are rather obvious. If you're asked someone, what sort of alternative kingdom is very tempting for Christians in the West to set up for themselves? Well, um, materialism, wealth, collecting possessions, collecting fame. I get, yeah, and we even look at those and we, we know how to put them in a category. We know how to um, avoid the temptations that come with certain just blessings from God and we know how to avoid the pitfalls that come with uh, um, greed or, or envy. Like all the, all the things that we imagine we build for ourselves, these little kingdoms. We even have sayings like you can't take it with you. We all know that. And I'm not saying that we don't continue to struggle with such things. But my concern is if we have Israel's kingdom, Rome's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, and then we have our kingdoms, my concern is that there are more subtle kingdoms that catch our eye. So subtle that we don't even know that we're following after them. 
so subtle that we don't even often see them as being in conflict with Jesus' kingdom. And yet I think they very much are. Um, a book came out a couple of years ago from a guy named Dr. Alan Noble. He's a professor at Oklahoma Baptist in Shawnee. Um, I think he's actually in their English department. He writes some really good theology stuff too. But he has a book called You Are Not Your Own. You're Not Your Own. It came out a couple of years ago. And he's borrowing a line from a confession, um, a confessional statement that begins with this. The first, the question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong both body and soul to God. We are not our own. We don't own ourselves. From the cradle to the grave, we are not our own. That's the answer to the question. And Dr. Noble writes this book saying that he is, he's noticing this, and you wonder if he's just got a, a, a very clear window pane because he works with university students and he sees a lot of these things in their embryonic form before they become fully-fledged you know, adults who wreck their lives. He, he sees this stuff, and he says... Um, you know, there's some, there are some cultural winds that are blowing that he's afraid have become cultural norms, that he is worried will be bound to the gospel in such a way that we don't even realize that we're going against the grain of Jesus' kingdom. These quotes won't be on the stream, but I, I pulled a few just sentences out of his book that I thought were really, really good at identifying some of those subtle ways you and I try to build our own kingdoms. So he says this. He says uh, that we live in a, a, in a culture, this won't be on the screen, but we live in a culture of technological distraction. And it inclines us to look for meaning in preoccupation, novelty, consumer choices, and stimulation. He basically says, Facebook, Amazon, and Netflix are killing us. He says, I, I, in the margin, I just kind of tried to summarize what he was getting at. He says, we are perpetually distracted. We are obsessed with novelty and new things. And we have to be endlessly entertained. And he is deeply concerned that we don't even realize that it's going to eat us alive. See, I wonder if these are the kinds of markers of the little kingdoms that we build for ourselves. That I need to be distracted. And I would like to have some new stuff. Or the stuff that I have isn't good enough because I can constantly see new stuff on the little device in my pocket. And by the way, since I have that little device out, let's just pull up YouTube. I think many of us fall prey to this, myself included. Later on, he says, we can find meanings. He's talking about Christians, by the way. He says, we can find meaning and a kind of justification without even needing a God, without needing an ideal, or a being, or a universal principle to divine and verify our lives. In other words, and I just wrote right next to that, he says we are incessantly independent, ferociously independent people. And then he spends several pages just looking at how that is really not how the church works. The church doesn't have in it a concept of rugged individualism. It's very communal in nature. The New Testament has, just has a whole lot of like one another texts, love one another, serve one another, rebuke one another, exhort one another, teach one another. 
this concept that, he, that, that Dr. Noble sees really growing. And he says, this is not a new one. It's just still deeply baked into our psyche that we are fiercely independent to the detriment of the kingdom. And then the last one, he says, our society embraces expressive individualism, a rather new term, a term that was coined only about 50 years ago. Our society embraces expressive individualism, a term that describes the modern idea that we gain meaning and justification in life through our individual identity, and we establish our identity through self-expression. And right next to that, I just wrote, we all want to be unique. We all want to be unique. And the gospel, when it pulls people into the church, just seems to speak very frequently about the need to conform. Ugh, that's a, that's a four-letter word in our society, conformity. Nevertheless, that's kind of how the church works. And what Dr. Noble's working from, and there's been a number of books in the last decade that have working, been working from this same idea, is um, from this watershed work done by a Canadian Christian philosopher, Christian first, Canadian second, philosopher third, named Charles Taylor. And he, his magnum opus was this massive book known as The Secular Age. It's miserable to get through. I don't recommend it. I have started and stopped 17 times, and I don't plan to finish. Um, but it is important. And he analyzes the Western society that he sees. And he says, we have as a society, and this includes the church, and this includes those outside of the church, we have lost the need or the desire for the transcendent. He says, we have pulled everything down. He, he describes it as the, the imminent frame. We've pulled everything down to just be ourselves in our little bubble. And this is one of the, my favorite quotes from his work. Charles Taylor says, there arises, this should be on the screen, yeah, there arises in Western societies a generalized culture of authenticity or expressive individualism in which people are encouraged to find their own way, discover their own fulfillment, or do their own thing. And then he spends 754 pages telling us why that's terrible and it's going to kill us. And I don't have to finish his book before I look at the gospel and think, this, this insatiable need to just, just be yourself. Let me be myself. You be yourself. I'll be myself. We'll all do our own thing. That insatiable need is us trying to build up a pseudo-kingdom that runs contrary to the one Jesus describes that is not of this world. So if kingdoms are de described or, or defined by the best life that they can offer and then the allegiance that they require, as I look at this temptation to build these sorts of kingdoms, this is what I've come up with as our best life and the allegiances that we will give to it. The first thing is our best life. If I had to be honest, left detached from the gospel and the work of the spirit and the work of the church in me, I think I would say that my best life is what I want on my own terms with little to no input from you. I want what I want. I want it how I want it. And I don't want you to say anything about it. Few of us have the goal to say that out loud, but it's often how we'll live that's our vision of the best life. 
And when we do it that way, some of the things that we have to then swear our allegiance to is I'm gonna take the path of least resistance. Because my goal is self-satisfaction and my, my, my path to that is authentic individualism. On their own, I don't know if any of those things are really all that bad. You start to string those ideas together and it just doesn't work well with Jesus' kingdom. A couple of examples. 2 Thessalonians 1. The church in Thessalonica um, was very much under the, the, the rule of Rome, rather close to, to, to the Italian peninsula and very much within the bounds of the Roman kingdom, under protection by Roman guard, taxes flow towards Caesar, and you have this fledgling little church figuring out what it looks like to live in the alternative kingdom, the one that's not of this world. Because I think they would say to Paul, but we still technically live in Rome's kingdom. How do we do this? And Paul will say things. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing. So they are growing, and the love each of you has for one another is increasing. So there's no individualism in this one, rather communal. It says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith and all your persecutions and afflictions that you're enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. Now, I have always found it so easy to just blow through verses like that because I've got to get to verse 6. I need to finish my reading for the day. I need to move on. But if I'll slow down and read the end of verse 5, a couple of things really pop off the page. One, there is this, this need to be um, credited with the, the worth that comes with being a member of the kingdom. You will be counted worthy of God's kingdom. And then it defines how you do that. And Paul's implicit encouragement to the church in Thessalonica is you are living in a kingdom that runs so contrary to Rome that it is going to cost you. And if you will stay the course, if you will suffer well, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom. I don't know when the last time I was told to or I've ever given the advice to others that, hey, if you will just stay the course and take it on the chin because here in the United States, living as followers of Christ just seems to look very, very different than the rest of the world and it's gonna cost you, but if you will endure it, if you will suffer well to the end, then you will be worthy of the kingdom. Usually, I want to encourage you that no matter what you do and kind of how you do it or what shakes out, you're good. And Paul seems to imply, well, it's, there's gonna be friction. You live in Rome, but you are a citizen of somewhere else. It's gonna cost you. And if you'll suffer well, you'll be worthy of the kingdom. It's a lot. And you could say, okay, is this something that we need to work toward because in the end, this kingdom will be established? No, the kingdom's already here. In Mark chapter one, Jesus comes, John shows up, crazy hair, and he does his thing, he does his baptism, Jesus is baptized, and then Jesus says that the kingdom's here. 
In Mark chapter one, it says, after John was arrested, so John has already gotten himself in a little hot water for going against the Roman kingdom, speaking truth to those in leadership, although it wasn't technically Roman, they were invested with some Roman power. So John gets himself thrown in jail, and Jesus goes to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That's the gospel. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. And so, in effect, Jesus says, I've already inaugurated the kingdom. It will come to its complete culmination, culmination in the end, but I've already inaugurated the kingdom. So the kingdom's here. Our best life in the kingdom is focused on life in Jesus. So what are the markers of allegiance? Well, repent and believe the good news. How do we swear our allegiance to this kingdom that's already broken in? Repent and believe. Repenting, biblically, doesn't mean saying you're sorry, although that's part of it. Repenting means changing your mind. Believing, biblically speaking, doesn't mean cognitive assent. Doesn't mean agreeing with something. It means entrusting yourself to an idea, a principle, or a person, so much so that if that thing or that person turns out to be a fraud, it will cost you everything. That's biblical belief. So Jesus says, the kingdom is here. Your job is to change your mind and to follow me with everything you have. It's gonna cost you. You're going to go against, you're swimming upstream now. And it's going to get rough at times. Maybe it was being at Superstart this weekend where, um, you know, I'm I'm just listening very um, interestedly as someone who likes to to take ideas and then repackage them for other people. Listening to them translate all this stuff to, like, the preteen mindset. I was very taken by how visual stuff is and how concrete the images are. And, and, you know, having kind of worked through this sermon already, I, I, like, I just couldn't help but think the parable of the sower might demonstrate Jesus' kingdom as well as anything. The parable of the sower from Matthew 13, is, it's a beautiful parable, and we all know it. You have the different kinds of soils, and they produce different sorts of results. One of my favorite preachers um, was preaching at a, a commencement ceremony at a, at a university, and he, he was talking to these students. They were all ministry students, so they were all going to go into the pastorate, and, and he was talking to them about this parable. And he said it just struck him as he's preached that parable in uh, rural communities, in agricultural communities. They're, he's always surprised by what surprises them. And he said um, kind of one of the... the shocking factors of the parable of the sower is just how crappy the farmer is. He's just not a good farmer. He's like, what farmer just throws seed on the sidewalk? What farmer doesn't till the soil and work it so that it's prepared? What farmer lets thorns override? He's like, in agricultural communities, they're baffled by what, what kind of idiot farmer is this in this story? And the point of, uh, of this preacher's Uh, uh, telling of that story is that he says it can be frustrating to us and yet very surprising and probably good for us when we are really taken back by how sloppy God is at times and and I and I think that that's really helpful to to come to this and just realize oh okay because almost all of the kingdoms that we've described are actually in some sense described in this parable And, and I want to conclude with this Matthew 13, Jesus says, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. 
This is the one sown along the path. So uh, here's the word about the kingdom, does not understand it. That's Pilate. He has no idea what to do with Jesus. He hears this, and Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king. No concept what to do with him. That's, that's the seed thrown on the path. It doesn't, it doesn't shock anybody that nothing sprouts up. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Almost like hearing Jesus after he's given you a bunch of bread and fish and wanting to make him your king. And then not long later, screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Same people. Up in Galilee, they hear him, then they turn on him. In Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, he comes into the temple complex. Before the end of the week, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. This is the rocky ground, the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distress or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. This next one might be us. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That might be our kingdoms. However, the one sown on the good ground, this is one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields. Some 100, some 60 some 30 times what was sown. Jesus' kingdom is marked by hearing what he says and responding accordingly. He says in John 18, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It says in Matthew 8, 13, the one who hears and understands the word produces fruit and yields. These great, incredible numbers. So then when Pilate asks his famous question at the end of this first encounter, he'll, they'll talk again in chapter 19. But Jesus says, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? Again, don't you wish we had tone? I don't know if he's truly curious. Like, what, tell me, Jesus, what is truth? Or if it's sarcastic and dismissive. But what is abundantly clear is that he doesn't know the answer. He's talking to the one who is truth, asking what it is. And he doesn't know the answer. So my prayer is that in light of all this information, again, none of this is new to us, but if we, if we would just remind ourselves and be wary of those subtle, subtle temptations to build alternative kingdoms, may we instead be marked as a community that lives out the fact that we know the truth, but also demonstrates that truth by constantly, constantly living into our allegiance to the one who is himself true. So one of the ways that we do that is we have this meal, which is so interesting to me. Each of these kingdoms had a, had a notion about a meal like this. Israel's kingdom, they of course understood this to be the Passover meal. It was more elaborate, more drawn out, held on a yearly occasion. But it wasn't charged with the meaning that you and I have. 
For the, for the Israel's kingdom, this meal symbolizes release from bondage in Egypt and God's faithfulness to do that. Where for you and I, this meal symbolizes release from a much, much worse kind of bondage. Rome had their ideas about this meal. They knew that Christians did this. They would write about it. It was so confusing to them. Like these creepy people eat someone's flesh and then drink his blood. They, we, early Christians were accused by the Romans of being cannibals because they didn't understand this. The worldly kingdoms don't understand this. They think this is a, a rote religious ritual. It has no meaning whatsoever. Every, day, every Sunday, a bunch of Christians get together and they eat a little cracker and drink a little juice. And that's just dumb, and it just proves how dumb their whole thing is. But the kingdom that's not of this world, we understand that this is really, really profound. Uh, this represents the actual means by which the kingdom was won. The giving of the body, spilling of the blood. And then this body and this blood didn't stay dead, came back. So we just do what Jesus told us to do is we remember that. Almost a swearing of allegiance to the kingdom. We remember the body that was given for us and we eat together. Not alone. We remember the blood that was poured out for us and we drink together. Not alone.